Hello everybody, I'm Viktor Kovalenko from the United States and this is my podcast Ukraine Decoded. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran of the first Russian invasion, I organize expert discussions about Ukraine, the ongoing Russian war against this country and the US national security interests. With me today is one of the prominent American foreign policy experts, Dr. Charles Kupchen, from the oldest think tank, the Council of Foreign Relations. Also, he's a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. From 2014 to 2017, when Russia began the first invasion into Ukraine, Charles Kupchen served as special assistant to U.S. President Barack Obama and as senior director for European affairs on the staff of the U.S. National Security Council. Dr. Kupchen, thank you for joining my podcast. And the first question is about your essay published in the New York Times exactly on the day of our scheduled interview. You wrote that now it's time for the US and allies to bring Ukraine and Russia to the negotiation table. This is not the first time when we hear about the need for peace talks about the fate of Ukraine. But this idea constantly causes a backlash from Ukrainians that are legitimately angry at Russia after so many atrocities and genocidal war crimes committed by the Russian army. On the other hand, I think that Russia is not ready to accept your ideas as well, to get out from the newly occupied territories, as you suggest in your article. But why do you think that it's time for negotiations? Well, I would agree with you that neither Ukraine nor Russia appears ready to go to the negotiating table. Uh, The Ukrainian military has been making very impressive gains of late and is probably going to to make more gains. I mean, we're obviously, we're headed into a more muddy and a colder season. So we're likely to see less significant movement on the battlefield, but nobody seems ready to, to start talking rather than fighting. On the other hand, I do worry about the potential for escalation. And I worry as well about the long-term effects of a war that goes on and on on the globe. Food shortages, rising inflation here in the United States and in Europe, the potential ascent of illiberal populism. And so I wrote the piece in part because I think we need a conversation about the risks of escalation, the stakes of this war, the spillover effects of the war. Right now, I I think, unfortunately, that conversation is a bit taboo. People say, oh, no, you know, Ukraine must win. And I'm all for Ukraine getting as much territory back as possible. I'm a supporter uh, of Ukraine. I think the Biden administration has done a great job so far of providing military, economic, and political support. I just worry that we might be headed toward a very dangerous uh, moment of, of potential escalation to a wider war between NATO and Russia. In your essay in the New York Times, you call the government of Ukraine to be more transparent about its war plans, and U.S. officials need more input into Kyiv's conduct of the war. 
I agree with it because American taxpayers should know what's going on with their taxes used to defend Ukraine. But Kyiv has a legitimate concern that the information about their war plans may be leaked to the same New York Times or Washington Post or elsewhere. Moreover, in your article you suggest that the US and allies should get directly involved in shaping Ukraine's strategic objectives and managing the war. But Ukrainians may be outraged about this. They may treat this idea as stripping them from their vital right to decide their own fate. On the other hand, Russia may consider the idea of the direct American involvement as escalatory. What do you think? No, because I think Putin already knows that the United States is taking the lead in providing weapons. It's providing intelligence. It's helping Ukraine find and uh, locate and destroy Russian command posts and arms depots. So the U.S. is already implicated in the war. What I'm talking about is a is greater transparency about Ukraine's military plans, its military operations, and more discussion. I mean, I, I think that Mr. Biden initially was right to say this is their war and they call the shots. But I do fear that we're in a situation in which the risks of escalation mean that the United States needs more visibility into and more input into the operation of the war. Mr. Biden himself has said this is as dangerous a moment as the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think it's more dangerous. And that's because the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred during the Cold War. This crisis entails a hot war. You know, bombs are flying, drones are crashing as you and I speak. Uh, NATO forces and Russian forces aren't that far apart. Uh, and when the stakes are that high, uh, I believe that the U.S. and its NATO allies should be working more closely with the Ukrainian government in making decisions ab about the conflict. As I wrote in the, in the New York Times piece, I think all Russian targets are fair game. Ukraine is morally and legally justified in attacking Sevastopol and, and, and vessels there, in taking strikes uh, against the Kerch Bridge, even though at this point, I, I don't think we have hard evidence that it was carried out by Ukraine, but it certainly looks that way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those strikes are strategically wise, because they can lead to escalation that in the end of the day does more harm than good to Ukraine. Dr. Kupchen, we all know from history that Moscow doesn't necessarily adhere to agreements, and it is more effective to deter Russia with a strong military force. For example, Russia never respected the Minsk agreements with Ukraine mediated by Germany and Chancellor Angela Merkel in 2014-2015. We may argue that she failed to enforce her Minsk agreements. But anyways, Putin used seven years to rearm and invade Ukraine again. Do you really think that now, if America will lead the mediation effort, then the peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia will bring fruit? Well, I agree with that assessment. And as someone who w was working in the U.S. government at that time and very involved with the Russians and the Ukrainians on implementing Minsk, I can agree with you that it didn't go anywhere. It really never got off the ground in terms of providing a serious framework for a, a territorial resolution. I'd respond to your question in several ways. One, 
let's give peace a chance. Let's at least open the door to a conversation. And I think it's dangerous that right now there is very little U.S.-Russia communication, extraordinarily little. And I think trying to move the parties toward diplomacy would at least mean that there's more communication between Washington and Moscow. Secondly, I think Russia may have more incentives to move toward diplomacy than it did before, and that's because this war has not gone well. Russia has lost its initial effort to topple the government in Kyiv. Russia is losing territory on the battlefield. Putin is facing an unprecedented backlash at home for this war and for the increased burden that the war is imposing on the Russian population. So it strikes me as at least plausible, worth an exploration, that Moscow may be more ready to look to diplomacy. And then finally, you know, I think that given the dangers involved, given the possibility of a use of a nuclear weapon, given the possibility that this war could in fact escalate to World War III, we need to at least attempt to bring the war to a close, mitigate the fighting through diplomacy. In his recent speech at the Valdai summit in Russia, in front of representatives from many countries, Vladimir Putin said that Russia is fighting back because, for too long, America has been taking advantage of the world, and he is fighting for a multipolar world. Do you think that this might be the true reason for his war against Ukraine, or is it just another Putin's lie? I think what we've seen by Putin over the last month or two is a pivot in the narrative, in part intended to rally the Russian people behind the war. Uh, and that's because the war has not gone well, and Putin is now demanding more sacrifice from Russians, including sending more men to the front line. More people will die. We've already seen somewhere close to 100,000 Russian casualties, including death and wounded. That's a high cost. And so I think what Putin is doing is, is trying to say this is an existential war. This is a war between Russia and the West. That, on some level, however, backs Putin into a corner. If this is an existential war and Ukraine keeps gaining territory and threatens to expel Russia from all Ukrainian territory, what will Putin do? We don't know, but I, that's one of the reasons that I think that there is potential here for escalation. So I don't believe that if negotiations begin tomorrow that they would advance quickly. They may go nowhere. But given the downsides of letting this war go on and on, I believe it makes sense to give diplomacy a chance. Dr. Kupchin, in your article in the New York Times, you suggest that Ukraine may have to abandon the idea to join NATO and declare neutrality. Yes, some time ago, President Vladimir Zelensky played with an idea of neutrality. Then he considered an idea of getting security guarantees from particular countries. But recently, he sent an application to the NATO headquarters that surprised people in the Biden administration. So official Kyiv is exploring various security models. But why do you think Ukraine has no place under the NATO umbrella? Yes, I mean, I'm someone who has had reservations about NATO enlargement from the beginning, going back to the 1990s. Uh, and I think some mistakes were probably made during that time, and we could have done more to anchor Russia in a post-Cold War security order. 
But that's now water under the bridge, and we'll be debating that for many years to come. But I do think that among the many grievances that Putin had, and many of them were delusions about Ukraine not deserving to exist as an independent state, that Ukrainians want to be liberated from their neo-Nazi regime. I mean, this is all rubbish. But I do think that it is not completely unreasonable for Russia to be uncomfortable with the prospect of Ukraine's membership in NATO. And that's because large powers generally don't like it when other large powers or alliances come into their neighborhood. And even though NATO is a defensive alliance, and you and I know that NATO is not about to attack Russia, the view from Moscow is different. Uh, And I do think that the continued expansion of NATO and that NATO's declaration in 2008 that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO, that is in part a backdrop to the conflict that we now see. Mr. Zelensky himself, both before the war and after it began, has at times floated the idea of neutrality, floated the idea of a return to the neutral status that Ukraine embraced when it left the Soviet Union. And so I do think that armed neutrality, a Ukraine that continues to have the military and political and economic support of the West, but does not become a formal member of NATO, does offer a model of how this conflict could end. Uh, But as we've been discussing, that end is, at least for now, far off. You are talking about an armed neutrality for Ukraine, Dr. Kupchin. This may be a good bite for Putin's regime to get them on a hook. But as I understand, this idea practically means that Ukraine will be left on its own, unless if such an armed neutrality will be backed by the defense guarantees from the United States. I put it in there as a part of a potential diplomatic solution because I believe it is something that the Russians would see as desirable. The Russians have been deeply, deeply uncomfortable with the enlargement of NATO going back to 93 and 94. Uh, And so as a consequence, it it is, is, is something that I think would make a diplomatic endgame easier to achieve. As a Ukrainian myself, I understand why the people of Ukraine cannot hear about any negotiations with Russia in the middle of the war, especially when they are emboldened with the battlefield successes and enjoy seeing the invaders fleeing. Even if the Biden administration will follow your advice, Dr. Kupchin, and will ask Ukrainian President Zelensky to sit at the table with Putin, he may see it as unnecessary when the victory is just around the corner. He may also argue that peace talks are dangerous for the unity of his country. This is my concern, how to even start negotiations. I completely agree with you. And, you know, I guess Mr. Putin thinks that he can bomb the Ukrainians into submission. Uh, He's wrong. The Ukrainians have demonstrated really quite stunning defiance, quite stunning determination and resolve since this war began. And it simply grows. You know, the more drones and cruise missiles that the Russians send to Kyiv and to other urban population centers, the stronger the, the will of the Ukrainians to fight back. And so, yes, it would be hard for Zelensky, given the current political atmosphere in Ukraine, to have a conversation with Putin about a diplomatic endgame. And that's why, in part, I think this will need to come from the outside. 
it will require the U.S. and its NATO allies brokering the diplomacy. Precisely because I do think that that right now, Ukrainians justifiably and understandably are in a mood to fight, not to talk. Dr. Kupchin, do you believe in a regime change in Russia? Why am I asking? Maybe there is more sense for Ukraine to negotiate with the next Russian leader. It's conceivable that Mr. Putin won't survive this war. I think it's safe to say that his political vulnerability is as acute as it's ever been. And the level of dissent is as high as it's ever been. And here I'm not just talking about the traditional Russian civil society or opposition, but even members of the Putin system have spoken up, members of the media, former members of the government. Uh, and so this is quite new. We haven't seen anything like this since Putin's been around, and it could ultimately do him in. That having been said, we certainly cannot count on regime change. I don't yet see the signs that the state apparatus is beginning to peel away from Putin. The security services, the military, the bureaucracy, so far it looks pretty steady. And until the state starts to pull away from the leader, I think Putin is going to be able to, to sustain his position. Would the world be a better place if there were a, a color revolution in Russia that brings to power a real liberal democracy? Yes. Do I think the likelihood of that is high? No. Professor, what outcome of the Russian-Ukrainian war do you see if there will be no negotiations? Um, I would say it's a frozen conflict in which the fighting dies down. There's a new line of contact. Russia maintains hold of some of the territory it has taken since February 24, but not all of it. And then we go back to a situation that is not unlike the situation after 2014, when there was an uneasy peace. Maybe that's the wrong word, um, a, a low-intensity war because people continued to die across the line of contact, as you know well. Um, that, I think, is the most likely outcome, in part because that's what we've seen happen so often in Georgia, in Moldova, in Nagorno-Karabakh. The Russians are comfortable with frozen conflicts. It keeps other parties off balance. But one of the things that I do worry about, and one of the reasons that I believe in the need for diplomacy, is that a frozen conflict, an endless war, really does take a toll on the global economy. You know, here in this country, we are less than a week away from midterms. I think it's likely that the Republicans will take back control of the House. I think that those Republicans may not support Ukraine in the same way that Biden and the Democrats have. In Italy, we just saw a party with roots in Italian fascism. Uh, in Sweden, Sweden Democrats have influence in the current government. France, protests, strikes, labor unrest. We are still living in an era in Western societies of considerable political peril. You know, as someone who lives in Washington, um, I found the Trump era very disturbing and very upsetting. 
Uh, I don't want that to come back. And I do think that when we think through our options in Ukraine, we have to factor in how that war is playing at home, what its economic and political impact is in the United States, in Italy, in Germany. And we need to take steps to ensure that inflation, high and rising cost of living doesn't threaten the very Western the liberal democratic community that we are attempting to defend in Ukraine. My next question is about Germany. Recently, official Berlin began changing its policy towards Ukraine and became an active arms provider. The German president Steinmeier sent signals of support to the Ukrainian people during his visit to Kyiv last week. It looks like we are finally seeing the Zeitenwende and a more responsible Germany than it was for 16 years under Angela Merkel, who promoted her neue Ostpolitik. Do you see those changes in Germany? The short answer to your question is yes and no. Uh, Germany, I think, is going through an inflection point. The decision by the current government to invest 100 billion euros in defense, the discussion of a Zeitenwende, I mean, this is new. And I do think that Ostpolitik is for now dead and that Germany understands it made a mistake in becoming much too reliant on Russian energy, on Russian oil and gas, and it's paying a price for that now. Will this moment, this war, end up fundamentally reorienting German foreign policy? Will Germany reemerge as a power with geopolitical heft and ambition? Right now, I think we don't know, but I would say it may not happen. Um, And that's because even though the Schultz government has said things that would indicate a turning point, they're dragging their feet on implementation. And I think that's partly because there isn't yet a full consensus in Germany. So I think, yes, there will be a larger, more capable German army. Yes, Germany will be more comfortable dealing with the projection of power. No, I don't think that we are yet at the point where we are seeing Europe emerge as a separate pole of power. And in many respects, I think the war in Ukraine, Russian aggression in Ukraine, has confirmed the Atlantic orientation of Germany and many other European countries. So in some ways, Macron's vision of strategic autonomy is becoming more distant because there is an awareness of European continued dependence on American power. Uh, So right now, I would say the situation in Germany is murky when it comes to, is this a turning point? It has the potential to be, but we have to wait and see. On this cautious note, I'm ending this episode of my podcast Ukraine Decoded. My guest was Charles Kupchen, a former special assistant to U.S. President Barack Obama and senior director for European Affairs on the staff of the U.S. National Security Council. He is now with Georgetown University in D.C. and the Council of Foreign Relations. Dr. Kupchen, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for reaching out and let's stay in touch. Bye. Dear listeners, thank you for listening. Please help me in making this podcast and paying for various services and subscriptions. You can donate what you can to my PayPal at paypal.me slash Mr. Kovalenko. 
You can also find a direct PayPal link in the description of this episode. Goodbye and so long.